Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord. Would you build up me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people any time, uh, my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make, you, make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. That ends the reading of God's Word. At this time, we're going to dismiss children 18 months through kindergarten to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a beautiful day to worship the Lord. What a silly boy am I to think I can preach through 17 verses out of 2 Samuel 7. I wrote a whole long sermon on this section that Paul just read, and it's like would take us till 2 p.m. today. So I'm only going to go halfway through it today and halfway through it next Sunday. Would you pray with me? Father God, in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, we come asking for help to understand the portion of 2 Samuel 7 that you will teach us from. I pray that you would enlarge our vision of your glory so that every harmful and hurtful thing that exists in our heads and hearts, in our relationships and lives, might be 
ejected in every glorious sanctification of faith, every increase of joy and beauty and power and holiness in our lives might be powerfully applied and invested in us. It's that we would see you for who you are. We don't want to have a fictional view of you. We want to know you for the way you really are. Teach us of your ways and your dimensions through this passage. Just as you teach David. Give us the grace that we need, just like Nathan needs, to be corrected where there needs correction. Give us Berean grace to to carefully listen Not only to the words of my mouth, but the the songs we sing and the conversations we have and the other teachers around us in our lives so that we might test to see if what they say to us is really true according to the scriptures. Your word alone is infallible. Inerrant, authoritative, sufficient. Fixed in the heavens and yet alive. Speak to us now through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, with glory redounding to you, Father, and joy abounding in our hearts. We pray it in his name. Amen. Several years ago, Susan York came to me and said, why don't you preach through 1 Samuel? And I thought, huh, I've never thought of preaching through 1 Samuel, but I love preaching through 1 Samuel. It's one of the most glorious experiences of my life. And then I thought, yeah, but I could never preach through 2 Samuel. But now I love preaching through 2 Samuel. In fact, this is one of the chapters that I'm most excited about preaching from in all the Bible. You hear me make exaggerated statements like that all the time, you think? No, that's not an exaggeration. It's absolutely true. In fact, all the scholars that I studied and I find myself agreeing with said this is one of the most important chapters, not just in the Old Testament, but of the whole Bible. This is the DNA of the whole Bible shown for us here in the covenant God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. You can see not only that the Old and the New Testaments are linked together because everything that God tells David here in 2 Samuel 7 actually comes to pass in Jesus Christ a thousand years later and is coming to pass in the church. We who are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ now and will for eternity. It's almost like if you could pull back the very chemical structure of the Bible, you'd find it's true DNA features, it's actual formative molecules that define what makes glory glorious and what makes love lovely and what makes truth true. It's right here in 2 Samuel 7. I have several quotes and I'm going to pass by them for the moment. Several scholars from the last hundred years, the last 500 years and beyond have said they cannot overstate how important 2 Samuel 7 is to the whole Bible. And I'm with them. I'm at a loss for words how to say if I could help 2 Samuel 7 come into every one of your hearts, massive amounts of struggles you would have would go by the wayside. Here's how it would work. 2 Samuel 7 has the capacity to enlarge your view of God to match the size of how big he really is. 
And the most important thing in every one of your lives is what clicks on in your brain when I say the word God. What vision do you have that comes into your heart and mind when you hear someone say the word God? That's what most powerfully defines you. That's what sets the trajectory of your life. That's what gives you strength to resist ongoing temptation and battles with sin. That's what gives you the ability to invest in other people's lives, not just once, but constantly. That's what gives you the ability to hang on in the midst of so many demonic attacks or persecution from the world around us. What you think about God is the most important fact about who you are. So what we're doing right now with 2 Samuel 7 open to us and still ringing in our ears as Paul just read it. And we're about to dive in and look at the very thing God's going to say to David through his prophet Nathan. Is the moment in which your vision of God is going to be enlarged to solve every struggle you face, no matter what possible struggle you could imagine. Either the ones you have now or the ones you have awaiting you in your life ahead. God is the best thing about the landing. God's the best thing about your family and your life. God is the best thing about this world. God is the best thing about all reality. He's ultimate, true reality. He's what you and I are meant to face and to enjoy fully, not meant to face in judgment and find his wrath. Second Samuel seven is the promise that God comes to his people whom he loves. And he says, I come in covenant love and everything I am for you is covenant love. And everything I've done for you is covenant love. And you have no clue how big my love is for you. In fact, the entire Christian life might be summed up in Lord, help me to say yes to your love. That's the entire Christian life. Help me to say yes to all your love. The height, the depth, the width and breadth of all your love. Help me to say yes to it. His love is the most powerful force in the universe and transforms into Christ's image. Everyone whom it touches. Look at the first. Three verses with me. Poor Nathan messes up the first time we see him in the Bible. Poor Nathan. <laughs> Now, when the king lived in the in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, first time we ever hear about him, apparently king's got a prophet. His name is Nathan, the prophet. See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Oops, foot in mouth. Shouldn't have said that, Nathan. That's not what God wanted you to say. Notice it doesn't say Nathan went and talked to the Lord. Oh, how we have to have grace and mercy for idiot prophets sometimes. Just like in the Old and the New Testament, prophets need to be weighed and tested with what they say. You're weighing and testing what I'm saying right now. We have to weigh and test what Nathan says. Nathan gets this wrong. He's not supposed to tell David to build a house. You're going to see that in just a minute. Not at all. We thank the Lord for mess ups like Nathan. They're just like us. 
David was doing well. He was highly successful by this time as a king. He was young. He had many wives and children, military victories under his belt, medals on his chest, and lots and lots of stories of being chased through the wilderness and God sparing him, and then lots of psalms that he was going to sing, and many friends to impress. One of those friends came and built him a house of cedar. And he says, look, I'm living in this beautiful home of cedar. And, and the ark of God, the, the box that symbolizes his presence, is out in that tent. So it isn't fitting that I'm living in this beautiful house of cedar built to me for me by my friend Hiram. I actually need to build a house for God to live in, says David. God granted Nathan, a prophet, to come and speak to David. And David heard the word from the Lord. And David was about to set to building a house. It all was prophesying, prophecy fulfilled of what Hannah had prayed two generations before, before even Samuel was born. Remember, at the end of 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. That's what God did through David. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. God did that through David. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He began to do that through David. He will give strength to his king. And she's, of course, referring to David because at the time she prophesied there was no king in Israel. And God will exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what God is doing for David right now. David is riding high. He's got rest from the Lord. But his rest is short-lived and temporary, as we know from the rest of world history and the rest of 2 Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. We know from, the, from what happens after that his rest is only a shadow. It's only a rest that lasts for a short time and points forward to a perfect and final rest Coming through his descendant, the son of David. Your life is the very same way. You're under blessing right now. We as Americans are under blessing. The landing is under blessing. My life is under blessing. So is yours. Pause for a second and say, Lord, how kind you've been to us. How kind you've been to my family. How kind you've been to me and my, my spouse and my children and grandchildren, my parents, my co-workers, my siblings. You have been so kind to us, Lord. We are in a season of rest, a season of blessing. But we ought not make the mistake that David makes to think, oh, let's build a building. Let's let's just add a building onto the ground. That's what we should do. God needs us to build a building. We have to be so careful here, don't we? God never needs anything from us ever. God is not a God who created the world because he was lonely. He's not a God who needs the landing. God's word and work was going forward wonderfully before 2017. When this church was started. Or before you were born or me. God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need any country. He doesn't need any army. He doesn't need any people. He doesn't need any part of creation whatsoever. He's not missing anything, lacking anything, hoping for anything, dreaming for anything, needing anything, waiting or wanting anyone or anything. God is God by his very nature. He needs nothing. Start there and say, oh, God. Who am I to think that I would build you a house? Who am I to think that I would add to you a place for your glory to dwell? 
My building a house for you, God, is a little bit like saying to the sun, hey, can I build you a sauna? Or to the Atlantic, can I dig you a well? There's nothing that God is that we don't have by dependence on him. Everything we are, we get and are from him by his grace. We exist. Therefore, we have nothing to add to him that we ourselves have not first received from him. To build a house for God was not what God asked. So look at verse four. After Nathan and David chat. David goes, oh, my prophet just told me to go do everything in my heart. Go get me my ruler and my and my uh, stone and my chalk and my nail and my hammer. I'm going to build a house for God, says David. Nathan told me to do what was all in my heart. But that same night, verse four, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now God is actually showing up and talking to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I've moved with my people Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The answer is no. Would you pray for me and would you pray for the elders? That we would not build anything that's of our own thinking and mind and origin. And comes and is is supported by people who just say yes to us because they're part of our group of yes sayers. Could this observation of this passage be more Prescient and powerful and pointed for us as a church right now. The last thing this world needs is a church. That functions according to their own human rationale and ideas and gathers people around it to say yes. That's the last thing this world needs. That's the last thing you need. Certainly the last thing God is glorified by. He doesn't dwell in buildings. He doesn't dwell inside man-made structures. He's not in the box. He's not in this box. He's so big that he covers all the earth. Oh, far bigger. This tiny little blue ball inside a tiny little universe that God holds in the palm of his hand. Is all too small to contain him. He dwells inside. Mercifully, the creation that he's made and all the more mercifully and stunningly, he dwells inside sinful human hearts whom he has redeemed. David's God was too small. David's God was far too small. Anytime we think we can work for God to do him any favors by adding to him and enlarging and and creating a space for him, we've got a vision of God that is far, far, far too small. You can tell you struggle with a too small vision of God if you find yourself dealing with nagging sense of fear unexplainably. 
If you find yourself slow to obey the clarity of God's word, if you find yourself struggling with a critical spirit or a dull sense of guilt, if you find yourself quick to excuse sinful habits or inclined to isolate from God's people or eager to prove yourself by extreme efforts or tempted to control other circumstances, even God, or finding yourself talking a lot about the devil. All these and more are signs of a small view of God. It's everywhere. David had too small of a view of God. How does God respond to David? He doesn't chide him. He doesn't merely correct him. He doesn't set him aside. He doesn't dismiss him. He's lovingly and graciously enlarging David's view of God. That's what he's doing in your heart, in my heart right now through this Holy Scripture. How does he do it? He begins by giving nine promises. I told you this was a massive sermon. Nine promises to enlarge our hope and vision of God. I'm only going to look at the first five today and, and we'll do so quickly. Who in their right mind writes a nine point sermon? But it's almost like it's a, a nine piece uh, tornado coming at David to enlarge his vision of God. It's, it's all bound and woven together beautifully. You'll see that as we go through the first five very briefly. And then I'd invite you to ponder and look carefully at 2 Samuel 7 between now and next Sunday and see if you can see the other ways that God enlarges David's vision of himself just as God is enlarging our vision of him right now. Promise number one, verse eight. The Lord said to David, now, therefore, that's how you can tell he's beginning his instruction. And now God gives this long, beautiful speech to David and to us. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, he's still talking to Nathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture. Where all the animals stink. I took you from that, from following the sheep, the disobedient sheep. That you should be prince over my people, Israel. Do you see the logic of God? I'm so big, I can take Jesse's youngest son, whose sandals stink like sheep. And all you're doing is taking care of the sheep out in the middle of the, the lonely, vulnerable, all by yourself, humiliated job of being a shepherd kind of place. And I can make you prince over my people, Israel. I'm the one who chose you. I told Samuel to go get you. I told Samuel to look past all of Jesse's sons to find you and to choose you. I chose you as king for myself, David. You're king of Israel because I want you there and I put you there. Praise God's holy name. That's God helping David to see how big God is and how small David is. David is decreasing here while his vision of God is increasing. Maybe it's true for you, too. He continues by saying, I don't need you to build me a house because I brought you up out from nothing. You and I also were in dire condition before the spirit of God invaded our hearts with love. It does you a God enlarging service if you ponder and say, from where did God find me? What did God have to work with when he saved me? What glory and grace must God have in the breadth of his goodness to come to someone like me and save me? 
Yes, there's a forgetting what lies behind and pressing on, but there's also a holy remembering, isn't there? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, say it, wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy. You see how big God is? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Everyone at the landing. David. Believers around the world. When you write your autobiography, who will be the hero of your life story? Who gets the credit for every good thing that you and I have done? James 1 says every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So maybe the name of your biography is going to be father of lights. And you'll write about all the great gifts God has given to you. Israel had the same lesson to learn for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. Promise number one, then, is God enlarges David's vision of himself in order to show that from nothing God made David and us great. Promise number two, from being hated to honored, God's been with us all the way. From hated to honored, God's been with us all the way. Look at verse nine. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. God reminds David that wherever David has gone, the Lord was with him there. If the Lord was with David in the valley against Goliath, out in the out in the fields with sheep, with his staff and his rod, fighting against bears and lions and wolves. If God was with David in Gath or in the caves or, or being chased through the wilderness or even in the courts of Saul, then how could David ever imagine building a house to contain a God who's everywhere? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David would look at his staff and he would see the bite marks from wolves and lions and bears and knew that that staff was how God was with David to fight off the enemies as a shepherd and how that staff represents the fact that now God will be with David no matter where he goes, no matter what he does. So David writes in the Psalm 139, I can go to the heights of heaven. You're there. I can go to the depths of Sheol. You are there for even night is light to you. You and I can say the same, can't we? Can you look back on your life? Oh, I can. I can think of painful times. I can think of painful scenes. You know, they almost come back with smells. They almost come back with color and image. I can think of painful things that I've gone through or Kath and I have endured or or our, our children with us. Painful memories. And, and yet it's worthwhile saying, God, you were there with us. You kept us faithful to you. You kept us from reacting in sin. You kept us from steering to the right or the left. You kept us from growing hard hearted or bitter. Bitter. 
How many wonderful graces has God granted to me and my precious wife and family, having been with us in every place we were, in every nation we went to visit, in every state, in every church, in every conversation, in every moment. The same with you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you go with his spirit dwelling within you and his promise is to go ahead of you and make the way for you to 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 clear the path for you into that conversation with your employer, into that email, into that doctor's office conversation, into that challenge, into that difficulty, into that sorrow, into the ones that await you. He promises not only to accompany you there, but to be there before you get there. So when you arrive, you meet him. How can you put that God in a box? How can you put that God in a building? How can you build a home for that God? He's far too big, far too great, far too glorious. He's been with us all the while. He's been with David. He will always be with you, David. He will always be with us. Brings me to promise number three. From obscurity, I, the Lord, will make your name great. From obscurity, I, the Lord, will make your name great. Look at verse nine. And I will make you for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Here, God promises to David the same thing he gave to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Moses. He says, I'm going to elevate you up to make a covenant with you. And I'm going to give you a great name among the patriarchs. Your name will be remembered as great in history. You are the little nobody taking taken from a shepherd boy, the least of Jesse's sons. And I have made you not only a great king over Israel, one who then dies. And maybe people wonder about his son continuing after him. No, God is elevating David up to the heights of Abraham. He's making promises here in 2 Samuel 7 that echo and fulfill and carry forward the same promises God made to Adam and Noah, Abraham and Moses. And it's all the more stunning when you realize David sins, not by merely messing up. He sins grievously. David is a murderer and he's an adulterer. David is a liar and he sins Deeply, And there is no setting up circumstances to excuse the horror of David's sin, which I hear happening all the time. He acted wickedly. What does that highlight? That God winks at sin and doesn't care about righteousness? No, not at all. It highlights far rather the vastness of the mercy of God who's willing to raise up as a prince over his people, a sinner like David. And then as you ponder that and as you settle on the vastness of God's mercy, you cry out, Lord, when will you give us a king who isn't strapped with the compromises of sin? When will you give us a king who's utterly faithful, utterly pure, utterly law keeping, utterly delighted in your glory from beginning to end without fail? And you realize That God has done that in Jesus Christ, the son of David, who will return in glory and he will bear David's name. Have you noticed this? He holds the key of David in Revelation chapter two. He will come back and call himself glorious as the root of David. That is, he's the one who gave David David's beginning. 
He sits on a throne called the throne of David, according to Acts 2, verse 30, and many other passages. He repeatedly, repeatedly calls himself then the descendant of David. His greatness stretches back to make David's name great. Even when Jesus was announced as the child to be born to Mary by the angel Gabriel, he proclaimed through Gabriel that he would be the son of the Most High. He's God. And he would sit on the throne of his father, David, Luke 1.32. So not only is David's name great, but we who believe in and trust ourselves through faith to David's son, God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we too are called great and given a new name, elevated from a place of cursedness and rejection and obscurity to a place of blessing and honor and adoption and beloved value in the, in the family of the living God. Listen to Revelation 3. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We don't gain a name by building a building. David would not gain a name by building a building. We build buildings for all kinds of useful ministry reasons. Yes and amen. Let's create an incubator for planting churches. Let's see churches grow out of the landing that cover the Northland like the waters cover the sea. Do it, Lord. There's unbelievers who, who need to get out of bed on the east end. There's unbelievers over in Superior. They need to rise up and, and feel the weight of the glory of God and the fear of sinning before him. There's, there's unbelievers in the west end and there's unbelievers in other communities that surround here. They need a church filled with joy, a church filled with the gospel, a church where they solidly and without, favor, without failure know that they're going to go in every Sunday morning and hear the power of Christ exalted being preached. But we don't build a building because our God needs one. We don't build a building because we need to offer God a place for him to dwell. We don't build a building because we need to offer God something that he needs from us. Oh, no. He's the one who calls us out of nothing and he remains with us all the way through. And then he gives us a great name by lending his name to us. Promise number four, from being homeless to being planted in a new garden. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Surely God is giving to Nathan and Nathan to David a word fulfilling Exodus 15. You will bring them in, people of Israel, out of Egypt and plant them on your own mountain, Sinai, the place they surely had in view, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So God saves Israel out of Egypt, plants them on Sinai and says, this is where they are going to be planted and cared for. And yet we know from the rest of Exodus and all of the scriptures that Israel doesn't remain in Canaan. It doesn't remain on Sinai. In fact, they were terrified of it and they didn't even want to go there because they were fearful of God. It was actually a mountain that they couldn't even touch. They couldn't even let their animals touch. It was a foreshadow. It was looking toward a final mountain and a final place of rest, a final planting in an untouchable garden of delight. Hebrews 12, 18 makes this so plain. 
Listen to the fulfillment of this promise that God will give his people land, but it's fulfilled in a glorious promise far bigger than any small parcel of land on earth could ever fulfill. Hebrews 12, 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. He's referring to Sinai there, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The writer of Hebrews now holds out what we are aiming for. What all the promises God made to Israel are fulfilled in. As the Holy Spirit instructs him. But, says the writer of Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And this God, so grand, so big, is worshipped by angels and by all the saints who've gone on before. And there's no way to build a building big enough for all those angels and saints. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You see how big it is? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are unrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood from Cain's hand soaked into the ground. And bulls and goats and sacrifices needed to be bled out. So that the people could enter into the holy place and be welcomed into the presence of God. That was a foreshadow of exactly what we just read here in Hebrews 12. Now the blood of Jesus must be spilt so that we can enter into the presence of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Love with all your heart the images that you find in the Old Testament and look at them as through a telescope all the way through to the glory that they represent. The old Jerusalem is a shadow. The new Jerusalem is entered by the gospel sprinkling of the blood of Christ. The gospel believed by you right now qualifies you through faith in Jesus Christ and his merit and virtue on your behalf to enter into the presence of the living God and not be incinerated, but be welcomed and adopted and beloved. Finally, promise five from enduring attack, I will make Sabbath rest for you. Verse 10 B and 11 and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David already had rest. But now God promises perfect rest. Better rest. Rest beyond what David was then experiencing. Rest so that we not, need not fear any of our enemies anymore. Rest so that we no more fear war anymore. Rest so that we not tremble at the power of the devil and think he has greater weight and might than he actually does. Martin Luther was correct. One little word shall fell him. Notice the link between the rest Jesus promises 
and the greatness and vastness and glory of God the Father in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me. Because I'm this vast, glorious God that you need. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're busy with ministry. You're busy with your families. You're being demanded of at work. You're being pressured by extended family. You're being pressured by friends. You've got this inner sense and feeling that, man, I just keep feeling like I'm a failure at something. I can't I can't find out what it is exactly, but I always feel like a failure, for goodness sake. You're dealing with anxiety. You're struggling with what some people are tempted to call depression. You're overwhelmed by this sense that I might be a phony and is God really real and is the Bible really real and am I really real? And you have this overwhelming sense that that things are maybe OK now, but but I don't even want to look at my phone because something really bad's going to happen. Or maybe that's just me. Jesus invites me by his Holy Spirit to come to him, the glorious son of David, the one no house can house. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me because I'm going to build a dynasty for you, David, not just brick and mortar, not just block upon block and stone upon stone. I'm going to build for you a house of people, a dynasty that lasts into eternity. So how big is your God? Do you have any need of any enlargement of God? Oh, I'm, I'm grateful for dreams that are being dreamt for this space and this building. But if this building burned down, I got a sermon ready for next Sunday. Let's just find a place to do it. You know, we have put no hope in this building whatsoever. Our hope is in God. He's the greatest thing about this church and about you and me and our life together. So Paul enlarges the vision of God and his work on the earth when he ends Corinthians, Second Corinthians, listen to chapter 10, just these final verses to end. Our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Enlarge our vision of you, Lord.